1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23, 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Something of a wish prayer on the apostles' part. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And then a little further in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 13. This has the appearance of possibly a bit of hymnody from the early church. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2:11. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Philippians 1.6. Some of you will know the King James Version of this from a hymn. The hymn I know whom I have believed. Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. One more. The 138th Psalm, verse 8. Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. All these passages, the word of our God. Let's pray. Now, Father, by word and by spirit, help us as only you can that we would see and hear and know this truth. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, author of the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles, bravely advanced the gospel during the English Reformation. But when Mary became queen in 1553, she had him arrested. From his prison window... He watched his fellow reformers, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, burn at the stake. It was unforgettable. With Latimer encouraging Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall on this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Cranmer, on the other hand, didn't play the man. 
he caved in. Government agents brainwashed him into recanting the gospel. He was set free and for several weeks enjoyed a comfortable life again. But they put him back in prison and he signed more recantations. But when he realized they were going to kill him anyway, his old courage returned. On the day of his execution in Oxford, he sat through a two-hour sermon at the Church of St. Mary denouncing him as a heretic. Then he was expected publicly to admit the error of his ways. But he stood firm. And now I come to the great thing which so troubles my conscience more than anything that ever I did or said in my whole life. And this is the setting forth of a writing contrary to the truth. And for as much as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall first be punished. That his response to the sermon. The remembrance of his sins was so grievous to him and the burden intolerable. In fact, he walked from the church to the stake so quickly the guard could hardly keep up with him. An eyewitness described his death in these words. Fire being now put to him, he stretched out his right hand and thrust it into the fire and held there a good space before the fire came to any part, other part of his body. For his hand was seen of every man sensibly burning, crying with a loud voice, This hand hath offended. As soon as the fire got up, he was soon very dead, never stirring nor crying all the while. Cranmer was a martyr, not a superman. He was like us. Sometimes he lost his nerve. The faithfulness of God. Now some of you may be wondering, how is the faithfulness of God really any different than some of the other attributes we've looked at, including especially God's immutability, is, is pastor trying to slip one by us, an extra cheap little sermon to throw in? I, I'm not. You see, viewing the existence and attributes of God as we've done so for several weeks now, in many ways it's like turning a diamond. You look through it and you see new light, new reflection, new refraction, new colors. We're holding before our eyes in these messages our glorious triune God. And that means there are times certain attributes are very near to one another in definition, but they're not identical. And always bear in mind, my friends, the attributes of God do not have solitary existence. We may think of them separately, distinctly, but they cannot be separated. And you can't take them as kind of a mathematical formula and add them up to get God. The faithfulness of God, said Tozer, is a datum of sound theology, but to the believer, it becomes far more than that. It passes through the process of the understanding and goes on to become nourishing food for the soul. Consider with me, if you will, 
what we see in the faithfulness of God is really in many ways more of application of God's attributes of immutability, of omniscience, of omnipresence, of omnipotence to our specific situation. It is us beholding God more than as an object of intellectual consideration, which must happen, but further to the application of that reality to our very hearts. We struggle with faithfulness. And the struggle here is that if I measure God's faithfulness by my faithfulness, then I'm never going to have peace. Knowing and grasping this truth, God's faithfulness supports your faithfulness and overcomes your unfaithfulness. God's faithfulness creates, establishes your faithfulness and overcomes your unfaithfulness. Now the fact is, the Scripture is absolutely running over, if you will, with examples and teaching on the faithfulness of God. I could have picked a number of places to have addressed this, just even in the response of reading this morning from that psalm, elements there, the steadfastness, faithfulness of the love of God. It's found throughout Scripture. But I'm going to ask you with me to consider two. Now you say, why do we read those at the beginning? To let you see there are several places. And by the way, you'd find worse texts to memorize for the good of your soul and comfort. But we will look this morning at two texts to help us see the faithfulness of God. One of these is an account of one of the kings of Judah. The other is what I'd call a glorious extended encouragement from an apostle. But consider first with me from the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah, chapters 38 and 39. Isaiah 38 and 39. And since the chapters are fairly extensive, we're going to hit high points here. This is about the great King Hezekiah. According to 2 Kings 18, there had been no one like him since David, and there'd be nobody like him afterwards. He destroyed all the idols in Judah. He even broke the bronze serpent to pieces because some had begun worshiping the bronze serpent. He fought and crushed the Philistines who were causing Judah troubles. He even joined in a rebellion against the world power Assyria. And in the face of the Assyrian threat, Hezekiah did very well. But what we see here in chapters 38 and 39 is that he does both good and bad. And I'd have you think about this event in this way. The frailty of man and the faithfulness of God. 
the frailty of man, the faithfulness of God. The 38th chapter opens with these words, in those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I'll make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz Turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. God's first word to Hezekiah, you're going to die. You're done. Some kind of an infected boil, a wound, not us, we think, don't think much of that. But remember, you're talking today, no such thing as Antibiotics. No such thing as those kinds of treatments. A skin infection could be the end of you. God's first word in Hezekiah's response is he faces the wall. He prays. Note, he cites his resume. Look at all I've done, Lord. And then he weeps bitterly. God's second word. He refers to Hezekiah's prayer. I've heard your prayer. He refers to his tears, but you notice the Lord doesn't cite the resume. He doesn't want Hezekiah to get the idea that he's somehow earned what God's about to grant him freely. Folks, be careful of transactional Christianity as our dear brother mentioned last Sunday. Willis made so clear. We We don't get things from the Lord because we somehow earned them. This is freely given. Alec Matir said it this way, it's a measure of the Lord's mercy that he hears prayer even when it rests on a false assumption like the bargaining power of good works. The promise is more than Hezekiah asked for. You'll live 15 more years You'll see me deliver you from the Assyrians. And when we're told this from the book of 2 Kings, the 20th chapter, the Lord says this to him as well. I'll deliver you in the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I'll defend this city. And here's how the Lord says it. For my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Hezekiah, it is not about you. The miraculous sign, something that Hezekiah could likely see from his room. Now, after this, Isaiah inserts a written version of a prayer of Hezekiah. And when you look at it, verses 9 to 22, this comes from his personal paper, 2 Chronicles 32, 32. 
It's his reaction to his deliverance that then sets up what we see in the 39th chapter. For you see here, this is God's faithfulness in our misery. He's dying. He's obviously in pain. And he asks for God to restore him. And God shows faithfulness. And when you read this account, verses 10 and 11, he talks about dying. Verses 12 to 14, he gives four pictures. The fragility of life, the decisiveness of death, God's hostility, and Prayer seems very feeble. That's how he faced death, waiting and weeping. And at verses 15 and following, the Lord's response, evidence of God's love and forgiveness. Verses 18 to 20, the grave seems to have no thanks, but I do. And then you get that strange little thing, we'll make a poultice of figs and apply it. By the way, the Scripture's not advocating prescriptions here of holistic, homedic ways to heal oneself. In fact, the timing of all of it seems a bit peculiar. It may be that he asks for the poultice, and Isaiah says, fine, give him the poultice, and then the sign shows up where the sun goes back on the dial. My friend, in, in our misery, we see God's faithfulness. Sometimes, my friend, when you get sick, one of the last things you think about ought to be one of the first things you think about. We start thinking in terms of comfort and recovery. <laughs> How long do I have to endure this? Am I going to get worse? Can I get better? How do I keep anybody else from getting it? And it, I'm not saying that any of that is unusual, but how often do we stop and think about the fact that illness is a reminder from the Lord of our frailty we are breakable we don't come with warranties but not have you consider as we think about this matter of God's faithfulness in our frailty and first in our misery consider here as well God's faithfulness in our arrogance because this sets up chapter 39 Now, I know all of you are quite familiar with Isaiah. You probably memorized chapters 38 and 39, and I don't have to point this out, but I've got to keep my place. So I'm going to do this, and you just bear with me, all right? 39th chapter opens. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, Merodach Baladan to the Assyrians was a terrorist. He considered himself a freedom fighter with his life devoted to the liberation of Babylon from Assyrian oppression. He managed a 12-year independence from Assyria beginning in 722, and even when Sargon defeats him, he carries on the cause. When Sargon dies in 705, just as he had done 12 years earlier, then Shalmaneser dies and he leads Babylon to rebel. Now he sends emissaries to Judah to aid in their rebellion. Hezekiah got caught up in the moment. He's got to show off a little bit. And Isaiah comes to him, verse 3, 
what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all this in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I didn't show them. Showed them all the wealth. Showed them everything. It's, it's arrogance. Look at what I have. Look at what I've done. And the Lord speaks through Isaiah. Now look at verse 6. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Literally, the Hebrew says, good is the word you've spoken. For he thought, there'll be peace and security in my days. Hmm. The Lord, in essence, says to him, fine, you, 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 you think you can trust in Babylon rather than me? All your wealth, going to Babylon. Your sons, going to Babylon. Your nation, going to Babylon. In essence, what happens here is Hezekiah says it's all okay because I get to die peacefully in my bed at home. And this is one of the good kings in the history of Judah. Now you say, Hezekiah doesn't make sense. May I point out that there are times you and I don't make sense. Remember, believer, your sanctification is incomplete. You and I are far more sinful than we actually realize. We are spring-loaded to fall away from God. Christ loves empty, ungrateful, waffling, confused sinners. The shepherd finds the lost sheep, carries it home. Even in our arrogance, God is still faithful. Our frailty, whether it's our misery or our arrogance, God's faithful. Quote from Ray Ortland: when your faith is weak, his love is strong. Now that's an Old Testament example, but folks, can we not find echoes of our own lives when we read this? See? Now consider with me a second text. And in this case, rather than the frailty of man, how about the anxiety of the believer? and the faithfulness of God. We've considered Isaiah's account of Hezekiah. Now let us consider the Apostle Paul's statements at the end of Romans, the 8th chapter. Now I suspect it's more likely that at some point some of you have memorized this than Isaiah 38 and 39. And this will be far more familiar material 
But in Romans 8, verse 31, to the end of the chapter, what then shall we say to these things? The truth which must embrace us. What shall we say to these things? What things? Well, how do you get to the end of Romans 8? Well, you've got to get the first part of Romans 8 and 7 and 6 and so on. From chapter 5 through to this point, the apostle has declared this reality. Therefore, being justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Further, that we have been reconciled to God. Further, that this grace abounds. There's no sin bigger than this grace. That it is triumphant grace. It triumphs over sin. It triumphs over the law. There is no condemnation. That we live by the power of the Spirit. We've been adopted as sons into the family. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And the Spirit even intercedes for us because we're not even sure how to pray. And the immediate context, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Those whom God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. And He follows this with questions which were supposed to bless us rather than plague us. But you've got to hear the whole question. Because if you hear the question about the modifier, here's the answers you come up with. Who's against us? Where to start? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? What? Will God give us all things? I don't know. Why should he? Who will bring a charge against us? Well, besides my own conscience, how about Satan? How about God himself? Who condemns? See above. But the questions are all connected to a comparison. If God is for us, who can be against? That changes the question. Right? If you just go, who can be against us? Okay, I've got a list. But if God is for us, now lest you say, how do I know God is for me? Have you not been listening? Go back to these things which all shout that God is for you. He did not spare his own son. His son. The father loves the son, John 3.35. John 14.31, I love the father at his baptism. This is my beloved son. He did not spare him, not holding back his beloved son, not holding back his terrible wrath. The father loved his people with such an invincible love and purpose that he executed the full stroke of their condemnation upon his son. John Murray. He gave him up for us all, not for Judas, not for Herod, not for Pilate, not for the unbeliever. The Father gives up His Son for us all. This 
those upon whom he set his foreknowing, predestining, redeeming love. He gave up his son. How small a thing it is for him to give us with him all things. In your suffering, he still intends your good and has set his love on you. Don't measure his love by your present experience. Rather, measure it by his faithful, loving act in Christ. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Here's the modifier. It's God who justifies. Next question, who condemns? Answer, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. It does not matter that the accuser, Satan, hates us and accuses us. It doesn't matter that other sinners see us and our failures and our weaknesses and condemn us. It doesn't matter that my own conscience accuses and condemns me. John Stott, sometimes our heart condemns us or tries to. So do our critics and our enemies, yes, and all the demons of hell. But their condemnations are idle nonsense. Why? Because of Christ Jesus. This is the faithfulness of God. He has chosen you. He has declared you not guilty. He has accepted the sacrifice of His Son as sufficient to satisfy His justice. The Father has received His own Son at the right hand of His throne as your Savior and intercessor. Christian, take comfort let your anxiety die here. God is faithful. Think. Well, I'm messing up. Stop it. Yes, repent. My friend, you spend your time thinking about you. You are doomed. I love that whole thing today. It's just so entertaining. Well, you need to be true to yourself. Yeah, you're an idiot. You obviously don't know you very well. Listen to your heart. Oh, stop. No, 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 no. My friend, the anxiety of the believer finds the faithfulness of God in this unchanging love. And not only is this faithfulness unchanging, this faithfulness is omnipotent love. He comes to this final question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he looks at all that happens to believers and all the dangers around them. Tribulation, distress, persecution, hostility from the world. Famine and nakedness, shortages in the world. Danger and sword, the threat of martyrdom or actually being martyred. He then quotes from the 44th Psalm, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, and in all these terrible, difficult situations, he then declares, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are triumphant in them and over them, not by being delivered out of them, but by being delivered through them. The final outcome is glorification. Paul's summary covers the entire scope of everything we experience. Life or death, our experience in this world, right? You're either alive or dead. 
Angels or rulers, the spiritual world. Things present, things to come. Time. Powers, physical or spiritual, height or depth, probably nothing at all in the known universe, heaven or hell, nor anything else in all creation, and by the way, that includes you, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The chapter 8 begins with no condemnation, ends with no separation, the faithfulness of God. God's love to you is invincible. This is his faithfulness. I would have loved to have heard Spurgeon preach these words. From the depths of hell I call the fiends, and from this earth I call the tried and afflicted believer, and to heaven I appeal and challenge the long experience of the blood-washed host. And there is not to be found in the three realms a single person who can bear witness to one fact which can disprove the faithfulness of God or weaken his claim to be trusted by his servants. There are many things that may or may not happen, but this I know shall happen. He shall present my soul unblemished and complete before the glory of his face with joys divinely great all the purposes of man have been defeated but not the purposes of God he is a promise keeping God and every one of his people shall prove it to be so faithfulness you see this is why Paul then in the ninth chapter takes up the subject of God's sovereignty because he knows in his audience there at Rome, there are Jewish believers who are saying, but, but, but man, all that stuff we were promised. And we've got brothers and sisters out there, literal brothers and sisters who haven't believed. What, what, what has happened to them? Is God faithful to them? And what is Paul's answer? Not everybody from Israel is Israel. God bestows his gifts. These great comforts are all the result of the faithfulness of God to his new covenant. Jeremiah 32, listen to these words. We don't often, we quickly do Jeremiah 31, but chapter 32 of Jeremiah, verse 37, Behold, I'll gather them from all the countries which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. I'll bring them back to this place. I'll make them dwell safety. And they shall be my people, I'll be their God. I'll give them one heart, one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Now listen to this. This is Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. There are two ways God's children could conceivably fail in the Christian life. One is we turn away from God. But what's the promise? I'm going to do something in them so they can't. Now, some of you get your knickers in a knot over the issue of the sovereignty of God and your free will. Let me let you in on something, folks. You want God to make you able to not fall away. And he does. The other thing is for God to turn away. Jeremiah comes and tells us in the New Covenant, God's never going to turn away, and he's fixed it so we can't either. 
This is how you answer the question, how do you know you're going to wake up and be a Christian tomorrow? Because he's faithful. The faithfulness of God in man's frailty, his sickness, his arrogance, the faithfulness of God in the believer's anxiety. How do I know? I stumble, I stagger. Bad things happen in my life. And I've got all these people out here saying, well, bad things wouldn't happen if you were a better Christian. Then I know I would be a better Christian. I'll try to do better. But it just, I don't think I'm, what do I do? You hold on because he holds on. I can't hold on anymore. That's all right. He can. And he's not tired. Let me close with this. The last and dying testimony of John Nisbet, one of the Scottish covenanters. The, the covenanters, this is in the 1600, 1638 to 68. Scotland was almost always in a state of unrest because the royal decree that the king was the head of the church and these very strong covenanters, for the most part Presbyterians, who would, would not submit to their conscience being under this kind of idea, any covenanter that was found by the military was typically executed on the spot. John Nisbet was arrested in 1685, shortly before his hanging, hear his final words. This, this to those around me. Be not afraid at his sweet, lovely, and desirable cross. For although I have not been able because of my wounds to lift up or lay down my head, but as I was helped, yet I was never in a better case in all my life. He has so wonderfully shined on me with the sense of his redeeming, strengthening, assisting, supporting, thoroughbearing, pardoning, and reconciling love, grace, and mercy that my soul longs to be freed of bodily infirmities and earthly organs that I may flee to his royal palace even the heavenly habitation of my God. For I am sure of a crown put on my head and a palm put in my hand and a new song in my mouth, even the song of Moses and of the Lamb, so that I may bless, praise, magnify, and extol him for what he has done for me and to me. Wherefore, I bid farewell to all my dear fellow sufferers to the testimony of Jesus who are wandering in dens and caves. Farewell, my children. Study holiness in all your ways and praise the Lord for what he's done for me and tell all my Christian friends to praise him on my account. Farewell, sweet Bible, and wanderings and contendings for the truth. Welcome, death. Welcome, the city of my God, for I shall see him and be enabled to serve him eternally with full freedom. Welcome, blessed company, the angels and spirits of just men made perfect, but above all, welcome, 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 our glorious and alone God, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, into thy hands I commit my spirit, for thou art worthy. Amen. My friend, if you don't know this Lord, believe in him now. Call out to Jesus to be your Savior if you're here. And I don't know all the words. You don't have to. He interprets. He reads hearts. If you need help, find me. Find another member of this church. But my friend, if you're not his, do not let this day end with you outside of the favor of his grace. You are not here by accident. Oh, Christian, in our frailty, he is faithful. <laughs> and in the middle of all of our anxiety, he is faithful. Let us rejoice in the faithfulness of our great God. Our Father, We see ourselves and we see how faithless we are. We're feeble. We don't hang on well. We stumble. We are clay. And yet, Lord, you are faithful. When we are miserable, you're faithful. When we are sick, when we're dying, you're faithful. When we are arrogant and sinful, you're faithful. When everything seems against us, you are faithful. When our sins alarm us, you are faithful. When the prospect of death and eternity frightens us, you are faithful. When we don't know how to pray, you are faithful. May we enjoy and faith testify to your faithfulness. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.